0: You're about to listen to an episode where we talk about hunting. So you might be interested in my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. To get it, go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. From this guide, you will learn how to get a deer hunting license, obtain a firearm certificate, and get permission to hunt deer on a chosen piece of land. Everything is explained in simple language and in easy to follow steps. Get my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. Simply go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. <laughs> this is Tommy's Outdoors 100. Folks, 100 episodes of Tommy's Outdoors. This is the 100th episode. And for the past three years, every second Wednesday, episodes was published. Actually... Not every second Wednesday, it was... Many, on many occasions I was pumping episodes every week. Uh, I think the longest was a time span for like six weeks when I was publishing episode every single week. But the usual schedule is uh, every second week, every second Wednesday. Uh, last three years, never missed one. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's a milestone today. And uh, I have a story for you about this episode, about episode 100. But before, before I share the story... Uh, I would like to thank you uh, first to all the guests on the podcast. Thank you for your time. Thank you for accepting my invitations. Uh, thanks for sharing your knowledge and your views and your opinions and uh, spending time talking uh, uh, with me. And especially special thanks for to all those guests who are, especially in the beginning of the podcast, like inside first 20 episodes. Uh, I, I greatly appreciate your support and I greatly appreciate your confidence in me and in the podcast uh, secondly big thank you to all of you dear listeners thank you without you this whole thing wouldn't be worth doing um, so thanks for watching first for listening uh, thanks for your time and thank you for all the engagement or the messages all the comments all the shares all those things you, you know this is great and it, it it really sometimes makes my day when I uh, when I hear from you, so so please keep coming the comments and keep coming messages and all that it's 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 greatly appreciated I just I just love it, um so big thank you 100 episodes, and now a short story about this episode 100, you know as the number 100 was approaching uh, a lot of you messaged me and sent me a you know. Uh, private messages or emails saying, like, Hey, what do you plan for one hundred? You know you planning something special? Uh, what's going to be on one hundred? And this started to mount like a pressure, like an expectation that there's gonna be some something extra in one hundred and for a short moment of time, I was thinking that i'm gonna do that, but then um, I even thought like, you know that would mean that I was not giving hundred percent on all the previous episodes, right? Like all of a sudden episode 100 is like super special. What does it mean that all the previous episodes I was not really trying? So uh, I always try to give you and deliver the best episodes, the best experiences, we talk to best guests, most interesting people, talk about the most interesting subjects. So that would be like, you know, I can't do any better for 100 because I already trying to do my best. Um, so I decided that 100, yes, it's a milestone, it's, it's great, but it's gonna be like another episode, like any other episode. And then um, Ashley Glover uh, reached out to me. Ashley Glover, he's a outdoorsman, a conservationist, axe thrower. Um, and he's also a, a listener. He is a fan of the podcast. So we had a chat on the phone, and then we had another chat on the phone. And that actually was his idea that we could do the episode where we're gonna talk about subjects that were already talked about in previous episodes of the podcast. And that will be an opportunity to kind of summarize 100 episodes. And maybe for people who are new to the podcast or did not listen to all the previous episodes, they can pick out some interesting episodes from the past and either discuss these subjects or Ashley will comment on them. And I thought that's a great idea, that's a great idea for episode 100, kind of look back at the previous 100 episodes and uh, look back at the, well, maybe not the whole 100 episodes, but kind of look at the most interesting uh, subjects uh, from Ashley's perspective. So uh, that was a decision, we're going to do episode 100, do this kind of like a summary. And although the episode is titled Deer, Sheep, and Fires, it really should be titled Deer, Sheep, Boar, Wolves, Mink, Trout, Woodland, Rhododendron, Fishing, Fires. Y- you got the idea. We, we just went to the town uh, with all these uh, discussions. And, and during the podcast, uh, I, I, I did the, you know, try to do a good job of mentioning the numbers of the episodes. Uh, so while you're listening or watching this podcast, maybe have a piece of you know, pen, pen and paper and you can write down the numbers of the episode that you might find interesting. And you say, like, well, you know, I'm going to come back and uh, uh, listen to the back catalog of 100 episodes of Tommy's Outdoors. So um, this is an introduction to this episode, episode 100. And as usual, before I let you enjoy this episode of the podcast... Uh, Folks, if you like what I do, if you're still with me after 100 episodes, and if you like to support me and the podcast, the best way you can do that is share the podcast with your friends. Share the podcast with people who follow you on social media, or send them email and say like, hey, this is Tommy's Outdoors podcast, tommysoutdoors.com. You may find it interesting. Share the episode. And also, if you want to go an extra mile, leave the comment, leave the review, leave the thumbs up uh leave the five star rating you know every platform uh, has it differently apple has it differently spotify spotify i think doesn't have anything uh youtube you can leave the comments so leave the comments share the podcast this is great help for me and this is great help for the podcast and really gives me energy um to record more episodes and and you know go to 200 Um, So yeah, that's it for this introduction. Uh, Once again, thanks for being with Tommy's Outdoors for the past 100 episodes. And now, without any further ado, Deer, Sheep and Fires with Ashley Glover. Ashley, welcome to the show. It's a special episode and special guests.
1: Hey, pleased to meet you, Tommy. Uh, looking forward to this session. I'm doing a bit of a review of everything that you've been dealing with over the last, uh, I suppose, year or so.
0: Yeah, listen, and I appreciate your, your feedback and your all, all, all the conversation that we had. But before we jump into all of this. You can throw an axe, right? Are you like a best thrower in the like sixth in the world?
1: Third? Yeah, yeah, I, I'm okay. I'm okay. Um, axe throwing is, a, you know, not a big thing in, in, in Ireland. So, you know, our, our team is a bit of the kind of Jamaican bobsleigh team of timber sports. Um, but yeah, we're doing okay. Um, you know, we're standing up well against the Swedes, the Germans, the Canadians. They have a heritage in throwing it was the um, first
0: time when I talked with you, it was the first time I heard the term timber sports. So can you, can you tell me, t- yeah. okay, so, like, what so, are the timber sports?
1: So timber sports would include, you know, any kind of lumberjack sports. So axe throwing is just one. Um, a lot of them would be standing block where you stand on a block of wood and chop through it. It's a, a speed sport. And there's other ones where you climb and put in a effectively a, a scaffold plank. And oh, then go yeah. up and I then cut. I've you may yeah, this yeah. one, yeah. And then there's a huge amount of chainsaw sports, oh, um, wow. and and then there's other areas like um, it kind of brings you into the whole area of guide sports, which would be things like um, canoe racing or um, distance fly uh, casting or kettle boil, where you basically you're given an axe, a block of wood, and a match, and it's whoever boils a pint of water the quickest <laughs> but there's a lot of there's a lot of those kind of heritage sports a lot of them come out of canada or scandinavia and um, log rolling would be a popular one i gotta send you some um some videos of my buddy who's seven time canadian log rolling champion
0: Oh man, this might is, be
1: another another idea for um
0: these are one of those with those spores that that but many people saw the snippets probably somewhere in a TV. Yeah. and was like, oh this yeah. is it. <laughs> and yeah. and this is so these are timber spores. And is it like a distance casting of you know, because I know about this uh, like a distance casting, I guess like a regular uh, you know, rig. Oh no, the rig, but the but the weight that you're fishing. From, their, from the beach, like right? a beach casting something. Yeah, and well, folks this... are doing this on the, on the field. It's like, oh, this looks pretty strange. Yeah, this would
1: be on the lake. So traditionally, I suppose, the guides from Canada would meet once a year and have like a guide competition where all the things that you do as a canoe and um, fishing guide and hunting guide in Northern Canada, and they'd get together and they'd compete on the skills that you need to be a guide. Wow. So that was where I suppose a lot of that originated and that tradition is still, you know, although maybe there's less guides now, but it's still a tradition that's upheld. Um, axe throwing is huge in Scandinavia. So uh, there's a lot of competitions, a lot of local clubs, slightly different profile. A lot of the axe throwing clubs that we visited in Sweden have been, you know, older people, uh, the equivalent of going to a lawn bowls club in, in Ireland. Um, Whereas in Germany, it's more like going to a biker clubhouse. Um, you know the the kind of traditional idea. If you think of a an extra, or maybe with a big beard and a lot of tattoos, that's more the a lot of the the German and 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 maybe some of the English clubs. Um, we're we're quite mixed in our club. Some come from a hunting fishing background, um, outdoors kind of background. Others come from more fitness. You know, jiu jitsu or fitness instructors that type of um. Um, background, but yeah, we have a good club, about twenty odd um, members in Wicklow. How
0: did that start? How like whose whose idea was <laughs> it?
1: Oh, there's a guy, uh, Matthias in Newtown, that imported, I believe, the first throwing axe um, into into Ireland. So there's only a couple of forges in the world that make the throwing axes. Two in Sweden.
0: So this One is not who, like any old axe.
1: No, no, it's a it's a special it's a special um, throwing axe. It's properly weighted. Um, for, for, for throwing. So Matthias um, imported one of those and he gave a few of his buddies a call and said, Hey, come around and throw an axe. And we were like, yeah, let's try that. So then of course we all had to go out and buy our own axes. And yeah, that's how Wicklow. This is, Wick... this is how it goes. So then Wicklow Axe Throwers was born and um, myself, a bushcraft instructor called um, Heath Dawson and a fitness instructor called Kelly Lynch and um, one of my fishing and hunting buddies, Lee Standing, um, got together and we said, oh, I wonder if there's any competitions. And it just so happened that just after we started throwing axes, there was the World Championships in Germany um, just outside Frankfurt. They've got a huge range there, like purpose-built place. So we jumped on a plane and went to Germany and um, I think we we placed, I believe, something like 12th and 14th or 14th and 16th out of about a hundred 150 um, competitors and you know we'd only really just started so we thought hey we could we could be good at this yeah um, and yeah since we've we've competed in Scotland we've competed in the the UK national championships we've competed a couple of times in in Sweden and um, our, our best trip so far probably has been to Nova Scotia we were supposed to be going to the European Championships in Switzerland this year, and um, which would have been great, and we were due to go to the World Championships in Barrington, Nova Scotia, but that's because of COVID. That's been postponed a year. So uh, yeah, we've got a bit more time to train and um, to beat all those Canadian lumberjacks. So.
0: It just like sounds like <laughs> a, like in my head, like the like, Irish is like like a nation that should should be involved in axe throwing, definitely. Yeah. definitely yeah 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 <laughs> oh man that's a that's a pretty good introduction axe throwing there you go and you and you're uh, uh talking to us from your boat which is which is also awesome <laughs> 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 listen man um so you you you've gone through a few episodes of of uh of my podcast and you had some thoughts around that
1: yeah i kind of thought well because it's coming up to the 100th episode, it might be worth taking a look back and a look forward. So a bit of a review. I'm coming at it from a Wicklow Uplands perspective in that, you know, a lot of the issues that you've covered from, you know, hunting, fishing, and conservation perspective really resonate with me. Um, In Wicklow, we have particular um, issues. You're probably, probably aware of them, and I know a lot of the podcasts have covered them. Um, so we could maybe look into a few of those. I suppose the the headline issues might be in the uplands is, uh, you know, rewilding, it's deer, it's sheep, it's rhododendron, it's, you know, overall, I suppose, upland ecology, blanket bogs and um, stuff like that. Um, and we could maybe run through a couple of those issues, some of the perspectives that other people have given, and then there are particular areas and particular podcasts that I just think were so awesome, like ninety five with Martha talking about, you know, um, the situation in. I'm not even going to try and pronounce that forest. Yeah, um, yeah, we'll yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you and 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 then maybe we could also start and again, you know, maybe. Uh, it might be worth looking at some of the areas that you didn't cover. And I know, you know, I call it like episode 27.5, which is the kind of podcast controversy one where, you know, there are some issues that people don't want to talk about. And why is that? And, you know, I live in an area that I'm, you know, it's, I suppose it's a, it's a dear hotspot. And we would, you know, be in areas where there would be a lot of uh, traditionally, a lot of um, burning of the hillsides and, you know and some of those issues people find it difficult to talk about so uh...
0: it's a, it's and listen first of all thanks for the feedback and for, thanks for the kind words and everything that you just gone through is exactly what you know like uh, there are hot topics that i like to talk about hunting fishing deer management this is all so you know connected and 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 kind of in, intertwined um so let let's let's start with deer and you know maybe I'm going to kick off with my thoughts and then then you can uh, kind of chime in and 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 you know we get this conversation going from the you know having some of the episodes in the background and my thought that I would like to share is you know kind of connected with deer hunting and and rewilding in one and people who follow let's say, ecological news. There was a, a little bit discussion, or actually quite a lot of discussion recently in Ireland uh, about wild boar that was released. All of a sudden, wild boar showed up somewhere. And we know that some, um, well, not some, but in general, people who are like Irish Wildlife Trust or people who are pro-rewilding, they want to, they want to bring boar back, um, which from hunting perspective would be great. Now there are there's many problems. Boar is listed as an invasive species for you know some reasons, maybe good reasons. And so, how I'm going to tie this to deer? Um, my thought was that we would need to, if we even talk about releasing boar, which again it's like it says, people are not willing to talk about it. If we were to release boar, we would have to manage it. We would have to control it some way. No, no doubt. Everywhere this is happening. And I figured that we don't even have a hunting organization, like All Ireland Hunters NGO club that could raise a hand and say like, hey, folks, great idea. Let's have a boar. And we're going to deal with controlling the numbers, right? There's, there are a couple of organizations that deal with deer and solely deer, and then... Then there's a national uh, parks and wildlife service and then there are ngos like Irish wildlife trust and so uh, i think you know there's not this the 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 discussion what what, what was upsetting to me a little bit was that discussion was going around hey let's release board they're so great there's all those ecological benefits and even if you mentioned control and management, then you go straight away, push back. It's like, no, 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 that will be failure if we need to build in, you know, manage. It. And so, you know, how is it going to happen? And my thought was like, there is no hunters organization that could come forward, meet the ecologist, meet the, you know, like a um, rewilding people halfway and say, hey, let's do this together. Which which was, that was, that was my thought in that somehow ties into deer because we already have this problem with deer management, even though we have a number of organizations that are supposed to deal with deer hunters. And so these were my thoughts. Wonder, wonder what your what are yours?
1: Well, I, I suppose on the, I am interested in the whole area of, of wild boar and the, you know, the opportunity to reintroduce wild boar. Um, actually near where I live, I believe there are, have been some wild boar. Um, although I debated and I went up with, you know, an expert recently to look at the site could just, there was so much disturbance of the earth that it looked way bigger than badgers, but it's also an area where there's a lot of badgers. And, you know, we found lots of badger tracks. We found lots of evidence of badgers and we found an area that looks like it's been dug up by wild boar. So I can't say whether there's wild boar or not definitively, but, you know, I put game cams up there for a while, didn't find any wild boar. But again, that doesn't say anything. I believe if there are um, wild boar in areas like that, um, up in the hills here in Wicklow, it's because hunters are, have put them there and they're feeding them. I don't believe you can just dump wild boar up in the hills and not feed them because they will come down into farms and they'll be shot. So... um. I think it's, you know, whenever wild boar appear, and you you know, where they have appeared in the Dublin Mountains, the Wicklow Mountains a few times, down around um, Scariff in East Clare, they've always been found and shot almost immediately. I don't believe there's a wild population, um, living anywhere really. And I suppose you know you've dealt it in a couple of episodes. I think, um. You know, 70, 70, I'm looking through the, the notes there. Um, episode 90, 97 and, and, and 78 looked at a lot of these issues around human wildlife conflict. And I think while the rewilders and the hunters would welcome wild boar, I don't believe um, the farmers would. I'm not sure about the foresters. Actually, I believe wild boar can be pretty good for forestry. Um, but uh, yeah, you'd have to speak to the foresters about that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Um, there's not, like when we talk about reintroduction of wolves and then I think about the Wicklow Mountains, there's very few places I can take you in the uplands where you can't see a house, very few places. So, you know, even though it at first glance looks very depopulated, there aren't that many areas that don't have roads running through it and, and don't have human habitation. So, I'm not sure where the boar would be. Um, there's nothing for them to eat in culture forestry. So, they're not going to stay in there. And, you know, they're going to go on farms because that's where yeah. they're going to. I
0: have- think on that, on that um, we can plug in episode 61 with, with Shane McAuliffe, who is a uh, pig farmer. And I think, you know, obviously he's on a, uh, he was obviously in, in, involved quite a lot in the recent. Uh, appearance of the boar. He was quite vocal. He was even on the on the TV on the not TV radio show discussing this issue. But uh, on episode sixty one, we talked about um, African swine fever. Yeah, and which boars are vector. Um, and I think this is the biggest biggest uh, reason why farmers, especially pig farmers, would be pushing back like crazy because you know, what we talked about on the, on this episode, uh, there's only quite, there's a few big farmers in Ireland and they're responsible for like a massive portion of the income on farming. And if according to Shane, if we found the African swine fever and boar, then all those big farms would be shut down. So that would be massive economical problem. Um, Now, Question is like we 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 clearly have some boar in Ireland since every now and then and popping here and there. So are there like are these in the private collections or like what is it? Do you know? Because then, then I believe you it's know,
1: just hunters release them. But how?
0: Where did they get them from?
1: They get them probably from the UK and put them in the back of a truck, put them on the ferry, and release them in their you know in their area or you know an area that they have. But is it is it is it? Yeah, I, I don't right? know. It's illegal. Yeah, but. They don't suddenly magically um, appear. Now, I know um, sometimes, certainly this has happened in the past, because I know of one example where uh, a a kid in the local village got what was thought to be a small pet um, Vietnamese pot-bellied pig or whatever, a mini pig, um, a handbag pig, if you like. And it wasn't, it was a huge, it just grew and grew. And it, it obviously, you know, couldn't, couldn't live in this MED. So they released it into the farm across the way. And over time, that pig, because I used to see it, it, it used to hang out with the horses in the local equestrian center. That pig grew and grew and people started feeding it and it grew and it grew and it, they become hairy after a while. So it actually looked like the first time I saw it, I was with my dog and my dog started running towards it. and I was like, oh, it's a wild boar. And then I asked around locally and they went, no, no, that was a, you know, pet pig that was released and it just looks like a wild boar now. It's it,
0: a, it's surprising, like a pig, because they're the same species, right? So Scruffa, there's the same species, like a pink domestic pig and a wild boar is the same species. And it's surprising. I haven't never seen this in my own eyes, but I heard it from number of sources that if you cut loose like a regular pink pig, you couldn't believe how quickly it starts to change its you know, external appearance. It starts to look like a boar, essentially.
1: Yeah, and I think there would be, like, obviously there's a lot of farms that have a couple of pigs just for their own use. And um, one of my buddies keeps a few pigs and it's on a deer permission of mine. And those pigs are always trying to escape. In fact, I have found them out of the pens and they only go back because they're getting fed there. (laughs) But, you know, if they were getting, if they found food somewhere else, they wouldn't come back to the pen. So... Um, They are amazing at escaping because they just have such power. And, you know, trying to fence them in, you need bars to keep pigs in. You know, normal kind of deer fencing type setup doesn't hold back pigs. They can dig, they can push. um, And if there's a few of them, they really will go for it. So I, I don't believe that all of the releases maybe have been intentional releases, you know, for recreational hunters. I'm guessing some of them are just Pigs that have uh, pigs that have escaped. Um, I don't believe there are kind of wild boar farms in Ireland that would have, you know, releases. I don't think it's like the mink issue. But again, I, I it's not an area I know that much that much about. But I have kind of you know, like just in the back of my mind, I know a couple of sites in Wicklow where there have been um, boar shot and and in Scarif. So there's definitely. There have been releases of some sort. They don't just magically appear. Yeah,
0: let's switch gear and talk about deer. What about what's what's the deal with deer in Wicklow right now?
1: Yeah. So how okay. bad is it? Uh, how good or how bad is it? Yeah. Um. I I think uh, as you as you know and 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 it's been covered. Deer's been covered. Uh, in a lot of the podcasts, I speak to Damien, um, from the the Irish Deer Commission a lot. Um. I believe you're going to have um. Doctor Ruth. On in the future and talking about we're working on we're
0: working on it oh she's
1: really keen she's just finishing a paper at the moment and then she says yeah i know you're first on her call list Um, it's always
0: something it's always something on our on our so this is like you know for people who listen to that what what you can expect in the next 100 episodes so uh, she's
1: she's she's awesome so what we've done recently with the irish deer commission is we've put in a few fois um i suppose i have a little bit of a background in lobbying and and I know a little bit about FOI and a little bit about mapping, a little bit about data. So can you decipher
0: of, for for listeners what is FOI? Yeah,
1: freedom of information requests. So you can put in environmental information requests, and you can put in FOI requests. And um, one of my, I suppose, um, problems with the information that is actively published on things like deer or sheep or fires or flood relief or whatever it might be the the you know the threats to biodiversity that a lot of the data isn't published actively. So you have to really go digging for it. And so if you want to get, I don't know, the the minutes from all the meetings on Gorse Fire's responses, or you want all the um, reports that have been written, all the deer management reports that have been written in the last 10 years, you have to do an FOI request. And FOI requests, there, there are some discussions about reform of the FOI Act, but at the moment it's it's a painful process. I think it's fair to say anyone that's done it. Um, it's it's not supposed to be this difficult, but I suppose it often turns into a battle and the information you often get back is so redacted that you know, you've know, you probably seen FOI documents that come back. They're just like black pen across the whole document. Wow. So they, they give you the document, but not in a format that you can actually tell anything from it. So there's a bit of work to be done on transparency. Um, the honest answer is from our recent, uh, our recent FOIs on deer is that there only one of the national parks has a deer management plan. And um, that's Donegal. That was done in 2017. Um, there is nothing for Wicklow. And as you're probably aware, between 40 and 50% of the deer in Ireland are in Wicklow. Um, so there is no deer management plan um, for Wicklow, and um, there are a couple of deer management pilot projects in Wicklow run by the Uplands Council, and there are a number of private landowners like Lord Mead that would have active deer management on their in their forestry and in Killarney?
0: their lands. are they doing anything? Is there any plan for Killing? Again,
1: the uh, the FOI. Basically, you put in your FOI and you ask for the deer management plans, and they don't say there is no plan for Killarney no plan for Wicklow they just say no records are found so you can't you can't say there's definitely not but you know along the way we've also spoken to people like Tim that do the deer management plans and it doesn't appear that there's anything other than the ones that we've received so currently I suppose Ireland has one plan just for Donegal that is you know somewhat dated if you think the context of, you know, recent couple of years with COVID, the restrictions on hunting, the restaurants have been closed. When the restaurants are closed, there's no deer poaching um, because there's no ready market for the meat. So um, they're just, you know, I know from bin in the hills, the places that you would normally see and hear deer poaching, there just hasn't been. Um, because, you know, if you're a, a deer poacher, where can you where can you sell the meat you can only you know put a couple of deer in your freezer and that's,
0: that's hey, hang, on a, hang on a second so you say like you go and you hear deer poaching so is it like it sounded like it's just like just like business like every day someone goes and
1: poaching deers in some parts of the uplands you would hear a lot of shots at night yeah yeah and who's and supposed to do something about to... it
0: and doesn't do anything then that's well logical question
1: <laughs> yeah there is and actually it's one of the things that we, we could get to in the end um there is a new of wildlife crime unit and um, been set up and that will be, as far as I'm aware, addressing anti-poaching. So it may be something that's um, that's coming, but at the moment, um, it wouldn't be something that's you know very resourced. So anti-poaching, and that's not just um, that's not just deer poaching. That would be overall wildlife crime, whether it's um, out of season burning, whether it's um, um, sea trap poaching, which is an issue where where I live. Uh,
0: or so, salmon
1: poaching. Yeah, yeah. We don't have that many salmon, and the salmon tend to run um, in, in the rivers near us. They would run very close to kind of Christmas time and much more difficult to to poach. The poaching, ten, and, and and there's not so many of them, poaching tends to be more around sea trout um, in Wicklow.
0: Oh, oh in Wicklow. Uh, yeah. Because I'm looking for, a, for the number of the episodes because um, I have an episode on... Um, Deer poaching. I'm just looking for for an episode number. Uh, I think it was fifty one. If I if I remember if I remember correctly, and apparently this is a huge problem with yeah, salmon it, 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 it is.
1: It is. It is. definitely it's fifty one for it's people listening. Yeah.
0: Episode fifty one: fighting illegal salmon netting with Bertie Brosnan. Yes, that was that was. Oh man, I was I was listening to that. I was well, not listening. I was recording and then listening while producing that. And it was like so upsetting, you know, I, I think the, the upsetting thing is like that this is so, so much politics going into that, that you're almost, you know, you can't have open discussion. It's like, Hey, what's up. Right. Do, do you like fishery board? Uh, do you need more money? Do you need a, do we need a GoFundMe um, policy? you know, campaign to raise some money for that. I'm sure anglers would do it.
1: Yeah, well, you know, Tommy, the best thing for, you know, stopping poaching in your local river is to fish on your local river because there's nobody netting a pill when you're fishing it, right?
0: Well, apparently, uh, you know, um, dogs were shot and cars were burned.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, like, Like, I know, like, in
0: Poland, I said on this episode, like, in Poland, they're, you know, I'm... I don't know how much situation changed for better or for worse, but back in the days, uh, even in the, in the angling magazines, there were you know um, articles about stretches of the rivers that are you know anglers are, are advised to avoid because there are poachers there and this is like just an organized crime. there are criminals they're you know they're they're there to grab fish as a you know so it's like you you know if you' fishing on that river better avoid this place. And I said it on on the on the on fifty one. And Bertie goes like, Tommy, the same thing goes on in Ireland, which well, I was like, whoa, I didn't know that. <laughs> i, I, not
1: I, I, in I with uh, Yeah, I, I definitely, I don't, I don't think it's organized crime like that. They're just lads that have, you know, like where we are, maybe third, fourth generation poachers, mm-hmm. and they believe it's their right to net a river. And if you net, you know, they wouldn't be obviously conservation minded. So if you're netting the larger spawning fish, particularly at the beginning and end of season when the big fish are coming up and you're, you're killing a lot of those fish, you know, it, it does have an impact. Um, obviously, over time on the river. Now, sea trout are, they're fairly resilient because they're not all in the river at the same time. So there'll be ones out at sea, there'll be ones coming up, there'll be ones way upstream that are individual fish in one small puddle, really. And they're not, you know, no one's going to be netting those. So they can survive, And arguably, you know, the bigger threat to the rivers is the state. It's you know, like the two big fish kills in our river have been. um, We don't know exactly who did it, but they've they've come from you know the local water treatment plant. So uh, you know, you got to put poaching in perspective. I think if you look at what's been happening on the east coast, the east coast river trust has been set up, and it's basically to give rivers a, a voice, I suppose, and, and a legal standing so that if there is a threat, like there was a threat to the Vartry River in Wicklow because Irish Water were looking at um, repairing a lot of the, the water treatment um, works, which would mean that more water um, would be extract, not extracted from, but less water would be in the river and because they were repairing a lot of leaks and dams and in the water infrastructure. And um, obviously if the water level drops, the temperature goes up less oxygen. It has an impact on the ability for the sea trout to, to spawn. So I think there's, there's a number of issues facing migratory fish. And um, we can talk probably for the rest of the day on sea lice and salmon farms. And um, it's actually, you know, just in passing, that's one. of I've almost always agreed with everything all of your um, your guests have said, apart from the guy that said it was okay to buy um, farm salmon. I have to disagree with him. <laughs> I feel quite strongly that, uh, yeah, I think we need to address the the fish farming issue um, because just, you know, like I was in Connemara last week and caught a couple of sea trout, and you can just see, um, you know, the size is small, the... Um, the amount that I'm coming up is is small, and you know they're just covered in lice. They have to get up to try and get rid of the lice, and you know the lice is coming from those big, big factory farms. So yeah, I think that needs that needs better regulation. It's been well covered in the media this week, actually. Um, there's been three pieces on it. Um, so yeah, there's definitely there's definitely uh, a body of work to be done on anti poaching, um, but there are also bigger issues that I think. Um, the state is is kind of culpable of in in protecting river and water yeah. it's
0: it's always upsetting that it takes like I'm I'm going back now to this uh, the um, wildlife crime unit it, it it just takes years it just takes years of talking and promising and committing to this and that and then three four years in it all turns out to be a tick box exercise it's like oh yeah we have a uh, you know wildlife crime unit, where oh, this is this guy there in the corner, right? It's like, and there's a guy who will be there anyway, you know, some guard who has twenty five other jobs to do, and they just added one more bullet point to his job description, wildlife crime unit now it's yours, right, and the dudes is like, yeah, okay, I'm guess I'm a wildlife crime officer now
1: yeah we we had a good um a good episode one Sunday morning where at the same time, a couple of lads from our local angling conservation club arrived on a bridge where there were lads um, netting, netting just below the bridge. And they'd cut the gate into the field and um, driven in and they were loading the nets and the fish into the back of the car. So they took off across the field. Um, two guards arrived and you know one of the guards was a young guy, took off his jacket and started running after the guys in the wetsuits across the field. And he came back. They, they, uh, they never found the nets, actually. But um, you have to find the nets and the fish really at the same time to get a, you know, a prosecution. But um, he was saying, I really love this. This is so much better than doing traffic stops on the N-11, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So I think you would get guards that actually, you know, do want to get engaged with um, wildlife crime and do, you know, understand the impact on biodiversity. So maybe over time, maybe over time that will change actually just as a, as an add on to that story i i followed through then the route that the the lads had, had followed down the river and across the the local the local farmer's fields and i had my springer um with me and i i believe he's the only springer that's ever flushed a sea trout because the first ditch we got to, he came in with came out with a 3 pounds sea trout in his mouth <laughs> lovely
0: uh that guard who took his jacket and started running he needs to be promoted man yeah definitely. like we need we, this, is, this is it right if you see the people who are passionate and they are like doing stuff this is so critical to encourage them and promote them and, and so like yeah this is this is great this is what we need man
1: yeah yeah so go, like i suppose going back to deer mm. and deer management you know we've got three kind of key stakeholders in in wicklow you'd have quilcha which has all the plantations, which, you know, provides no food for the deer, but provides, you know, I suppose, the cover and the shelter. You've got the uplands, which is parks and wildlife. And then you've got the private woodland and, and farms and forestry. And um, you probably understand the way Quilcher works from deer, that you join a deer syndicate, you um, bid for an auction for a piece of Quilcher forestry to shoot in, you do your cap or whatever, and... Um, then you're supposed to do a return of how many deer you um, culled and so on. But I suppose the reality is, you know, I know a lot of guys in those syndicates and, you know, how much active um, shooters are in those clubs. A lot of the guys are in pheasant clubs or other game clubs. And, you know, generally only a percentage of them are deer stalkers. Only a percentage of them are active um, chatting to one of my buddies recently who's in a in a syndicate and he was going yeah we've got about 30 people in our kind of game club about 10 of them have deer rifles two of them were out this year now this year is maybe less than normal years and between them they shot one hind that's it that's in that and that's a massive area of of, of Wicklow so there is there is a probably a, a resourcing issue there Um you Passing mean in, in terms life.
0: like there's not enough, uh, not enough hunters. I, I mean, like
1: this yeah, is inter- yeah, this yeah, yeah. Inter- they getting older? They're, they're, this like, is interesting. It's an a- aging population of hunters, so they can't be up. You know. You
0: see, so this is this is very interesting because this is something that I talk a lot, and I even recently was was uh, was talking with uh, one of the one of the people. Uh, involved in deer management and I said like, well, you know, we know there's this problem with hunting hunter recruitment and so on. And whether you talk about in with what's the name deer Alliance, I think they're, they're H-Cup people, right? They're yeah. deer Alliance or you talk about and NA- with uh, NRIGC, they will go, Oh, number of hunters going up. We have more applications and year in year national parks and wildlife service issuing more uh, deer hunting licenses. And so, when you talk with, you know, people involved in that, you have this picture like we have more and more hunters, and everybody is hunting, and there's a more h cup certificates, and there's more hunt- deer hunting licenses. On one hand, but then, then on the other hand, it's like a, as far as I'm concerned, common knowledge that the hunter recruitment is down, young people not going into hunting, like young people not going into outdoors in general. Right, PlayStation is probably more, uh, you know, compelling to them, and i th- I think there's less and less so I, I i i curious what's your opinion where is that discrepancy where where it's coming from that on one hand there's like more license issued more hcap certified and all that, but then on the other hand there's like uh, you know how how what's the average age of a deer hunter
1: yeah they like I live in a deer hotspot. I know most of the deer hotspots in Wicklow and you know, I know what a Hunter's Jeep looks like. I know where they would park. Uh, you just don't see that many people out. Now this year has been maybe exceptional because of COVID and the restrictions. And so people were in doubt, but in the last, you know, I'm talking about over the last 17 years, um, you know, I've lived in the same place. So, there doesn't appear to be, um, in certainly in recent years, a, a large amount of new hunters coming into the, you know, into the sector. the 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 numbers maybe on, you know, how many uh, sales into game dealers and all might tell you a little bit more information. We can check that, but yeah, I'm I'm just anecdotally not seeing it. And, you know, chatting to people that live in, you know, right on the edges of, you know, the big hunting and, and the big poaching areas, they're just not hearing the shots. And I know, you know, moderators and thermals and all those kind of things. And people say, oh, it's because, you know, all deer are being shot at night now and you just don't see it. You don't hear it. And I'm like, I would. I absolutely would. Um, you know, when you're living there, you know what's going on. You just because. You know there's only so many places that people can park the jeeps, so um, you would know you would notice it. And I'm in the hills a lot, um, so I, I I think there are there are less people again anecdotally getting at getting out. But you know, one of the things maybe is worth going back to FOI is worth doing some FOIs on is about you know the number of um section 42s that have been issued where they've been issued that sort of for deer, um, yeah, for deer or in because, general well for for, for for deer we can talk about seals um, separately. <laughs> yeah um, for deer uh I think it's it's worth it's worth it's worth a look and actually sections are for other things as well as you probably know and um, there there is probably um very valid reasons if you have a um a sensitive water course that you need to look at um you know controlling the seabirds that may be um, predating and um, that water course so um, like cormorants, exactly like cormorants. So there, there are there are other reasons why maybe sections from a biodiversity perspective are, are an important um, thing. Cormorants are not something I know that much about, but again, I have seen them in places that really they you know ideally they wouldn't be um they wouldn't they 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 wouldn't be in you know but like
0: they, they wouldn't be because they 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 normally would be different in different places but because the environment was changed and everything that that's where they moved because this is one of the things that i you know yeah kind of, yeah, like, yeah. And, and you said that you don't know much about it but you know we can, uh, neither do i you probably know more than i do but it's like well, you know, like, how if the if the cormorants are coming in and they like decimating population, then my question is, like, did they always done that, or is it, or is it, you know, something else upstream in it the could, ecosystem? Is screwed that's up?
1: that's my feeling. It's something else in the ecosystem, you know. But that same place that I'm thinking of has a large population. Well, a large population. I think there's only something like 24 breeding pairs in the country of gooseander and um, ducks. Um, but the hill above that has got a lot of peregrines and, you know, there's going to be like, you know, a lot of those gooseander um, chicks are going to get predated because one of my buddies saw uh, a peregrine come down and take an adult mallard off that lake. Um, recently it was just a lot of squawking, a lot of feathers and, you know, the, the relative sizes of those birds, it was pretty impressive to see. Um, and yeah, so, with a small population of gooseanders and peregrines, there's going to be a conflict and no one's going to be suggesting that you control the peregrine population. Same with mm. otters, you know, yeah. same with pine martins. What, pine martins probably cause as much impact on a sea trout river as mink. Oh, really? But, yeah, probably. Now there's, there's not as many of them and, um, you know, nobody's going to suggest that you control the pine martin population. And, oh, some,
0: some already suggested
1: that. Uh, it's illegal to re, I know. Re, re, remove or rehouse oh, yeah, um, I know. Pine, Pine Martin. Um, but yeah, we would have, you know, like uh, I had a call recently because there was five mink in one pool, like a whole family, two adults and three kids on a, a pool on a sea trail river near me. Hmm. In one pool, five mink. That's a lot of mink um and you know if that river wasn't wasn't um managed and and the mink weren't trapped then obviously you know they're going to have a significant impact if that population are these all mink that they, are
0: they escapees or are they all yeah from yeah they be they be
1: they be escapees there used to be a mink farm in wicklow yeah so okay. they because be i know that escapees. there there was
0: a you know smarty smarties animal rights activists they 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 Set free some, yeah, the mink yeah. Or whether or, um... whether
1: the whether the releases were, um, by mink just escaping or whether they were released, I suppose we'll never know. Um, it's probably my guess is it's a little bit of both, but they um like you know they're one of the the critters that really thrive in Wicklow, really. So mink? um yeah, mink have done pretty good. Um, and is and... It, is it
0: trapping going on for mink?
1: Um, the Anglian Conservation Clubs would do a bit of trapping, or they would shoot them when they see them. Um, I believe they shoot and trap in the in Kilkul in the bird sanctuary and the, for the terns and so on. Um, they certainly they certainly sh- um shoot the foxes and the grey um, grey crow, crows and other other predators for the the um conservation, and um, there. But yeah, mink would obviously you know kill everything on the everything on the river and um, i believe otters they don't otters don't predate mink but they will um stop them from breeding because they would predate the kits probably so i think um having an otter will move on the 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 mink but i've certainly i've caught sea trout where the sea trout has basically been almost dead when i've caught it and either that was because it was you know just being continually you know, chased around the pool all day. Um, but I've also seen um, fish being caught where their whole side was eaten off. Um, just a huge piece out of the side of the, um, the, the the fish. And we put down traps and and caught mink Yeah, at that yeah. pool. So you can't People
0: say, probably saw that video of mink, mink catching a, a duck, a, a mallard or something.
1: Yeah, they'll, they'll catch duck, they'll catch mice, voles, pretty frogs, anything that um moves pretty much. And and on just the for, river, for people listening to predator. that,
0: mink mink is this is American mink. They're yeah. they're not supposed to be here. They're not supposed so, to. so in other they're words they're not supposed to be here. Yeah. So in other words, animals you know, native animals never evolved coping mechanism to deal with this predator. So just just yeah, throw don't, it out there for I, people who listening to this, like, oh my God, they wanna kill poor Mink. Like no. I don't
1: believe there is a state program i don't believe parks and wildlife or ifi actively trap mink no i i think it's just local angling conservation clubs that do it um or you know individual farmers or you know anybody that keeps chickens for example um would trap mink but um yeah there's probably there's probably uh just not much data on you know like everything else if there's no data on it and and it's the problem hasn't been articulated. Then we just don't know what size the problem is um, uh, of uh, of of mink, and it's probably quite um, localized as well.
0: Mm-hmm. That's an idea for a next episode about mink.
1: I think yeah, mink that's, is a good one to to look at. Yeah, yeah.
0: Then we come back to deer and, and yeah in and, and Wicklow? Like, what are the impacts on, on on deer? Like of deer? Like how how do you see this? laid out is there is is it heading towards inevitable catastrophe with being eaten by deer or
1: well one of the things like you you definitely see in the hillside a lot of um tubes you know those forestry tubes um and and you see a lot of um deer fencing and they're things that you get grants for so you don't get a grant for doing deer management per se but you get grants for building forest roads and putting in tubes and putting in uh, fences. And my, again, you know, I don't know how you would get the science on this, but what I've seen again from, you know, nearly 20 years of observation in the hills, if you put in a new plantation of forestry and you put it all in tubes and then you fence off the whole thing, <laughs> what's that going to do to the deer population? It's going to increase the deer population in the surrounding existing woodland. And so my experience of, and, you know, when Is you it going to increase
0: me, the population or is it just going to increase the density? No, it'll
1: increase the density in those places. And the, the, the population is probably increasing anyway, realistically. Yeah, 30% um, of the year. We have, you know, I, I was chatting to Paddy Purser, who's one of the local foresters um, recently, and I was saying, oh, I can take you to six um, herds at the moment that I know that are probably, you know, more than 400 deer in a herd. And, you know, if you speak to Damien or somebody that would know Kerry quite well, he'd go, well, a big herd down here might be 15 deer. And I'm going, there's just massive sea care herds here. Huh. Um, you know, I was up up near um, Derry-Borne the other day and there were 150 on one hillside. And I was just out hiking, looking. For, uh, one of my hobbies is collecting shed antlers. So I came down behind the herd and it's always for collecting shed antlers, you're better to be above. because You can look down and you can see where they are and they kind of glint, you get your eye in. So as I went down, obviously the herd pushed into the gorse below. When the herd came out, the other side it had nearly doubled. And then I went into the woodland behind. Now I couldn't see when it came out the other side, but I know how many are in that woodland. You know, you're probably talking on that one hillside, 400 plus um, deer. Now, if you have a piece of forestry near there, it's, you know, there's going to be zero regeneration of that forestry. And it's because there is no, there's no obligation on those landowners to have a deer management plan. And it becomes more difficult because you've got the three stakeholders. You've got the private in that area. There's a large private estate that appears to have no deer management. There is parks and wildlife above, which again, we don't know what the deer management um, is in parks and wildlife in Wicklow but there's a lot of deer in the uplands. Anyone who goes over Sally Gap or Wicklow Gap or down to can tell you. Um, and then there's all the Quilsha around, which on paper have um, deer syndicates managing the deer in those. But again, anecdotally, you just don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah. People couple of questions.
0: Uh, actually, a couple of questions. Like when yeah. you when you're working on the on the on the mountain on the mountain and you you know looking at deer looking up deer uh, hunting shed shed hunting let's say how many miles you do in a day?
1: Oh, I move slowly um and and I zigzag. I'm a bit like a springer spaniel on the hill. Yeah, yeah. that's But just
0: on, on average, you know, how many, yeah, how many
1: uh maybe 10 miles or 15 miles something like that um i would tend to go you know the area where you see the most wildlife and actually there's less and less places like this are the places that are furthest away from um human habitation they are generally um not culture and not parks and wildlife so if you take a map of the boundaries of the park that's got really the the least amount of biodiversity you'll find <laughs> um you'll find sika, you'll find badgers that's about it um quiltshire it provides cover but not really um, much in the way of habitat and um, so generally if you find me up in the hills i'll be trespassing i'm on private estates because that's where the best biodiversity is that's where the best woodland is if you want to see native oak you've got to go really into a private estate there are some examples at some some maybe exceptions where the state um, has um, private woodland that would be, you know, I suppose heritage woodland, but a lot of it's been looked after by by individuals, um, and yeah, it's it's under pressure. It's so, a, it's really so that forest small remnants of it.
0: So so the next question is like this: um, this this <laughs> fenced and and plastic tubed forestry. This is Sitka's plantation right these are not native
1: trees. yeah or it could be like there's increasingly now there are groups that get together and they raise some money and they get an it company to sponsor it and they will plant and they'll put it inside tubes and they'll put it inside fence um but they often won't have a, a deer management plan that you or i would understand um and often it's not written down and it's basically just yeah kind of hoping that everything doesn't get um doesn't doesn't get eaten by deer um as you may be aware I, I spend a lot of time around deer fences deer go under fences they don't go over fences generally mm-hmm. um, really? so yeah yeah they'll just you i've, I've watched them often you know you, you you'll see them they hit the fence they follow down along the fence because the grass is greener the other side of the fence so they'll follow it down they'll find a place where um a rabbit or a fox or something has gone under the hind will put her Nose under it, push it up onto her shoulder and just wriggle like a salmon underneath the the fence and you know the fence posts are far enough apart that you can just hold the fence and hold it up you can get under them usually yourself um so deer have worked that out so over that's time why,
0: that's why deer fences suck
1: yeah i I think deer fences suck because they're protecting even if it's you know done with the right will in the world and it's you know broadleaf planting and all that it's still a farm of broadleaf trees it's not naturally regenerating often it's not appropriate for the soil conditions and there's other issues that you know people try and put trees because they go oh you know i want to have ash i want to have oak i want to have you know these heritage trees so they get a field they buy a field they fence it and they put those trees in tubes inside that (laughs) <laughs> my my theory, and again, this is kind of I suppose, you know, what we'd be trying to do with the Rivers Trust and some of the other conservationists talking about um, you know, if you're gonna plant, plant along the watercourses. One of the things you may be aware of is hinged willow. Oh
0: no. Have you Please. come
1: across this idea. No. So um yeah, we had some guys over from the the UK trout um conservation groups before doing doing some um, reporting on the rivers in Wicklow and um, one of the things that works very well is planting willow along the river banks and then hinging it. So you willow, as you know, grows very fast and you basically cut it, let it fall into the um, water course, but don't cut all the way through. Yeah. And it provides, it stabilizes the bank, which is great, but it also provides fantastic habitat um, for the fish and, you know, other critters along the bank. So um, yeah, I think planting along watercourses is better you get more bang for your buck mm, than doing these standalone fields, and um, you don't need to, you know, worry so much about the, you know, the um, the fencing off these individual fields, and and you know if you look at particularly if you choose a field that's in the middle of a kind of Quilcher area or a deer hotspot you're just going to be fighting a losing battle with that. It's a very difficult proposition um, to try and, you know, restore or start uh, a a native woodland. What I'd like to see more work done on is um, protecting what we've already got and, you know, starting to expand out from those. So looking and mapping, this is why I've got interest in GIS recently, trying to map where the existing remnants of woodland are and then starting to build out from them. And often they are on watercourses, you know, if you look at some of the good spots, you know, up around the Avon Moor, Glen McNass and so on, there, there's definitely opportunities, I think, to do that. You're not coming in conflict with farmers because there's, you know, along the watercourse, there isn't, you know, you can't farm that. Um, and you're getting the benefit of improving the watercourse as well as improving the woodland. So
0: yeah,
1: my theory in, in, is in, that in, that's a better approach.
0: And that probably we also, you know, I'm just coming back to these forestries. Then, you know, it's almost always bugs me. This, uh, like you said, plastic tubes, like <laughs> more, let's, let's put more plastic onto.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I believe, and again, I've, I've been looking into this recently. I believe the rules aren't that you have to take the plastic tubes away. So I can take you to loads of woodlands that the whole floor of the forest is covered in these plastic tubes because. You get a grant to put up the fence, build a forest road, do all blah, 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 but nobody then comes back and takes the tubes away. So I'm kind of thinking maybe, and I don't know how this would work, that when you get funding, if, particularly if it's state-funded, to put tubes in, that each tube has your unique identifier on it, your air code or the name of your forestry contractor or whatever it is. So then
0: you you have to be taken to away take again. You have to take care
1: of it. When they, when they break up, you know, when they're individual tubes, they're kind of easy enough to remove. But over time, in the sun, they start to break down into this little shrapnel stuff, and that gets into the soil. So, long term, I think if they're not being removed, I think they're going to become a, a, you know, a problem for, um, for those woodlands. You know, I just don't see how that. You know, if you let them break down into almost dust and they're all blowing around, how they're going to be collected, um, unless there's a plan. That's a
0: that's a that's a problem. Listen, so. Uh, just to wrap up the deer uh, thing, I have a question for you about um, comments on the ratio of stags and hinds and like, is, is that is that uh, situation healthy or is it a problem?
1: Yeah, so I've been asking a couple of people like, um, I know you've had Adam and um, Killian um, on, and they're probably better to ask, but you know, I, I think it was Adam I was talking to about it recently about the ratio. Um, and it seems to be as simple as just the males just don't have the same survival instinct as the females. Um,
0: <laughs> there is this, this Twitter feed that says like why, why women live longer and there's all sorts of crazy stuff. I, and- think,
1: I think it's the same <laughs> with deer. So you probably know yourself when you approach in hunting season, when you approach a, a, herd, of, a herd of deer. It's always the, the, you know, the senior hind, the, the matriarch of the herd that is always looking out and looking out for everyone. And she's the one that sees you, wins you first. And even when
0: yes,
1: you've starts. done everything right and there's no way she could have got your scent, she still knows you're there. She's looking when you look up, she's looking straight at you. Right. You've had yep. this experience. So she's the one that looks after them. And at the same time, the males will stand, they'll they'll go, oh, there's a bit of movement up there. I think I can smell something and they will walk straight up to you. Yes. So I think there is a little bit of that, um, why the ratio is as it is. I'm not sure what the ratio is supposed to be, but uh, <laughs> I notice even in kind of the, you know, maybe the larger managed herds. Like I was trying to do a little bit of a account there recently up on the Guinness estate. And I, I was kind of going maybe out of, you know, 200 um, Sika on the Valley floor, maybe a third were male, something of that. But that seemed a lot. Um, you know, most times maybe one in 10, but it depends on the time of year. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, you see the huge herds in Wicklow of Sika Hines, but you don't see huge herds of males. Um, and, you know, when you in the rush, you go to an area that maybe have, I think the most males I might see in one spot together might be 25, 30, something of that. But that's a lot. Like that's bigger than most full herds in most counties.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah. It, do you think there's an element of uh, uh, that, stags and, and, and males are more likely to be shot because of antlers you know let's not let's not kid ourselves a lot of hunters they're after antlers not so I don't much.
1: know like there is like certainly this year there's no kind of what you call tourist hunters but I don't know how many tourist hunters come to Wicklow to shoot and you know regular hunters do they really mm-hmm. you know
0: they call trophy hunters
1: yeah do they <laughs> do they do they call um for the heads i'm not i'm not sure mm-hmm. i'm not sure mm-hmm. um, you know so, i think so, so, a lot so, of them are are calling like if they're calling kind of you know let's say semi commercially um to to sell to the game dealer then i think they're going for low hanging fruit what is you know nearest to my jeep that's, um, that's for sure and 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 then you will maybe get people that are you know more um into deer management, and there are, as you know, there are some big estates that would have dedicated um deer managers in in Wicklow, and they would be managing the herd, you know, uh, according to what you would see as kind of more modern deer management um you know strategy. But in, in general, yeah, there's there's so many more hinds, and and in large densities.
0: So for folks who are are again listening to that, uh, to stay in the spirit of the recap, that's episode 73 with Killian when we when we talked about modeling of the uh, population of animals and episode 89 with Adam when we talked about monitoring animals and camera trapping and all that. They they were pretty cool
1: episodes. I think it's going to be quite interesting to see what um, Killian and his team come up with um, in terms of the, the, the mapping um and and the smart deer um, project um and and what wicklow looks like relative to other other um, parts of the country so um i think that's towards the end of this year we'll see we'll see some data coming out of UCD on on, on deer and that's the first project looking at um i suppose taking all the legacy data um and and starting to look at what a framework could be for, 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 for going, for going forward. Um, and I know probably Ruth's going to be talking to you about that, um, on a weeklow context and thermal drones and, you know, how, how you, you know, what modern deer management looks like. It's not just, you know, going around counting poos. So
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. Listen, man, I gotta, I gotta drop that bomb now. So what about wolves, right? Let's just cut loose bunch of wolves in Wicklow and they're going to sort out deer problem overnight. No. Yeah,
1: I don't, I don't, I don't I don't see where they're going to go um, in Wicklow. So if somebody can, you know, show me those wild places in Wicklow, I'd, I'd love to visit them. I just don't know where those places are. They're, you know, there's just like, they're not going to sit up on the hillside in the, in the national park. There's nothing there. There's no, you know, there's really nothing for them. There's not even much in the way of shelter. There's no, certainly no woodland. Um, I can't see them living in the, the Quiltshire plantations, Maybe, um, so where they're going to live? You know, in the surrounding um, farmland, in the you know the river valleys that come through. Um, you know, maybe they could you know live in Devil's Glen or in Glenmalure or you know in the Dargle coming down into Bray. I'm just not sure where they're going to live. I am you know as I as I said earlier in relation to boar, I can't think of many places where I can stand. In the wicklam mountains and not see a house
0: mm-hmm. you know this is, is a conversation that i had a couple of times on, on uh, about wolves and you know the whole argument is like well we just need to allow them to live and they're gonna figure out they don't then they don't need like a massive wilderness area where there is no people and no phone reception they will do just fine as long as we let them be um that's a, that's an argument anyway um I am not sure. I understand that argument for sure. But then my response to that is always, do I really want this like semi-urbanized wolf? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like I would love to have wolves, but they're like a proper wild wolves that are live in the wilderness rather than, yeah, they're going to do just fine. And they're going to be sneaking, you know, scavenging trash bins in the back of a little at night and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, I'm not sure. And on top of that, even if we do, we do that, there's going to be such a, a enormous amount of social conflict introduced together with wolves. Ah, man, I hardly see this worth. I don't know. I'm sure many people would disagree with me, but it's it's a tough one.
1: Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I think you know from a Wicklow perspective, and I can't think of other areas of the country that you know wouldn't face the same the same issues. I just can't see where and there would be uh, the the habitat that would support a, a wild wolf um, population or, the other or hand, a you wild said, boar population.
0: Yeah, but then on the other hand, says there's like a ton of deer in Wicklow. Wouldn't it be just that you just start jumping on this, those deer?
1: Yeah, but like where are those deer? You know, they're in the surrounding farmlands and, you know, so uh, yeah, maybe, maybe. Maybe I'm, I'm, you know, if somebody wants to to go for it, to absolutely like, you know, get the <laughs> permissions and, you know, do a, a do, do, do a do a do a release. But, um, you know, I think there's there's so many places in the world that you know you could do, uh, you know, that type of rewilding, and um, with wolves, mm-hmm. you know, you see, Ireland. this is
0: this is, I, I think, like one of the. Uh, and and again i'm kind of building my knowledge as i do these episodes i kind of building my knowledge by talking to people like yourself like others and i think that the one big thing now i'm gonna now i'm gonna do a little bit of like advocate for for wolves um that the a lot of um Objection is that oh they're gonna be depredating livestock and they're like oh the, you know the wolf will take a sheep rather than chase a deer which is wild rather than you know they're gonna go and kill a sheep and so on and so forth and then even like people listen to ninety five where we talked about Białowieża and all that like in Poland like most of Europe there are wolves and it turns out that the ma- major conflict with wolves is on on pets dogs yeah. cats this is this is this is really where the problem is not with sheep. I found it a, a little bit, you know, like a funny almost that people who are, there's, there's this narrative of the urban rural divide, right? And like oh, people who live in urban areas, they want wolves because they don't have to deal with wolves. And then they're going to put the wolves back and then farmers have to deal with them. And I, I find this funny because if we ever get wolves in, it might turn out that those urban people will be dealing with more consequences of their cats and dogs being being killed rather than farmers with their sheep. So just a just thought that, you know, it's, it's not such a clear cut. And, you know, and it, that's where in, in 73, when I was talking with Killian, it was so fascinating, you know, the idea of trying to model that, to use the computer models and artificial intelligence to model, you know, how those populations will behave, what they're going to do and as you get more data you can feed into the model and refine the results and you can actually try to predict fairly well you know whether these populations of wolves will you know go after cats or sheep or what what they what they going going to do um so that that's 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 interesting but
1: um, but i i i think you know we're only at the early stages of starting to map deer yeah and and stuff like like i've never seen a map of sheep density so you know, probably the impact on biodiversity of sheep is significant, but, you know, there is no public data available on that. You're doing an excellent job now to
0: pivot into the sheep subject.
1: Yeah, yeah. So so there there definitely would be an impact of wolf and um, sheep together if, you know, wolf were um, reintroduced yeah. to, to Wicklow. Absolutely. Um, but I'm not sure how significant that would be because there are, you know, there are um, a lot of deer um, for them to predate as well.
0: You're, you're of the opinion that we have too many sheep?
1: Oh, I don't know, because I don't know how many sheep we have. You can tell, the state provides data on how many sheep are um, in each county, and they split them into high, high sheep, lowland sheep, and then two kind of hybrid um, types. So, so that's the amount of data that's available. Um when I last spoke to them, they said from um, this year, um, I think the census is done towards Christmas time every year on sheep numbers. Oh, um, yeah. Anecdotally, there's less sheep farmers and sheep farmers are aging. Maybe like we spoke about hunters, they're a, a more an aging population. And um, sheep farmers are an aging population. Um, I don't know in terms of density. And I don't know what the, the overall population trend is, but what they, they have told me is that there will be some better granularity of it and down to um, electoral districts. So there's, I think, 82 or 83 electoral districts in um, in Wicklow. So you may be able to tell what the density of sheep is in a particular area and then start to, you know, do some modeling on, on the impact on biodiversity. I think what I'd like to see is I'd like to see um, work on. I'd like to see mapping on sheep, um, deer, rhododendron, huh. um, which I think is a you know, like it's almost like it's a coming issue in Wicklow, but nobody's really addressing it. And if we leave it for the next, yeah, if we leave it for the next generations, I think it's going to be, you know,
0: twice as bad. It, Ten it's going to be as twice
1: bad. as bad. Yes. Yeah. So if we start dealing with it now, um, I think that would be a good idea. But we haven't done that in other places. So, um, but yeah, I do. I do think um, rhododendron and cherry laurel in wicklow is going to be. It's going to be a problem um, because, and particularly along the watercourses where it, it really, it really shouldn't be. You know, because nothing can grow underneath it. It is pretty toxic stuff. Uh, so sorry, yeah, on sheep, I'd, i I'd, I'd like to see the better data and better visibility of where the sheep are and i'd also like to see some more pilot projects to um you know see what the alternatives are and um you know what um conservation opportunities there are because obviously it's hard to have sheep and um native woodland in the same place hmm. yeah yeah, um, but, yeah but, but with deer sorry just to mm-hmm. cut across you there yeah, yeah, yeah sure on 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 native woodland regeneration which is i suppose my thing i'm very interested in in native woodland regeneration i spend a lot of my time um, in, in, in the small bits of native woodland that we have and obviously if there's loads of deer in it nothing grows like I can take you to you know native oak woodlands up near me and there is you know there hasn't been a tree managed to get um, you know above above an acorn since the, the deer population has been what it is so there's, there's a body of work to be done to um, to fix that woodland and look after that woodland so that woodland can it just stay as it is and and regenerate itself and ideally expand a bit. But if it's completely hemmed in by farmland, by quiltship plantation and so on, obviously it can't move. The woodland is is trapped and then the deer come in and eat everything in the ground. If there are sheep in there as well, obviously it's double whammy in it. you know It's probably going backwards at a, at a rate of knots. But the alternative is, I've also been in woodland that has, you know, that's completely fenced in and has no herbivores in it at all. And that doesn't seem good either. Yeah, You know, the, the brambles and everything grow up and you can't even walk through it. You know, it just seems, you know, you can go too far the other way. So I think there is, there's a kind of happy medium. And, um, you know, I had a, there's a, a beautiful piece of woodland I'll take you to um, Tommy when you're up um, next and it follows a water course and um, it's, it's, it's fenced, and uh, I took Porik up there um, recently. I know you've had a, a, few, um, a few podcasts with Porik, and I think he was pretty impressed with that bit of woodland, and you know, we were able to walk through a few trails in it because there was deer in it, and you know when the deer fences have come down, the landowner is an older gentleman, and you know, I ring him and he gets the, the deer fences um, fixed, or if the small um, bits, I'll fix them myself but you know I was chatting to the landowner about well you know he was going oh because I'm getting on a bit now I can't even walk through the woods because they're getting too overgrown and when the deer get in they basically open her up a little bit so there's a bit of a balance you know i think deer should be in woodland but not in massive densities so if that, if that woodland has a plan and you know it's it's a controlled deer population then fine But if there's pressures in the surrounding area that put all the deer on that whole uh, mountainside into that woodland, because it's the only um, decent habitat um, in town, then obviously, you know, they're just going to, you know, uh, wreck that, wreck that woodland. Yeah. So uh, I think. So, so
0: sorry to cut you off. Like yeah. for again, for to stay in the spirit of the episode, There's episode number twenty and sixty-eight with Porrick Fogarty. When we, we talk about Irish wildlife traffic in general, and sixty-eight when we talk about rewilding and all those you know kind of issues that you you talk about right now. But listen, Ashley. But in general, are you on the opinion that if you if you you know I run that survey one day on Twitter and Instagram. When you see the hillside, you you think, oh, what's a, what a beautiful landscape? Or you think it's a wet desert, overgrazed, wrecked habitat, and all that. Which which one is the dominant feeling?
1: Mm. I suppose the the in Wicklow, the the state-owned bit is the you know the biggest challenge. Let's say, and um, because nothing really, there's nothing there. It it, it is you know it Over is there. the pits. Yeah. Um, and it's not just like the the we, we can talk about it in another time, but the blanket bog um, takes up a huge amount of, uh, of of the uplands, and that's just wrecked. So um, yeah, I think we need we need to start looking at um, we need to start looking at the blanket bog issue. If we are to look at the the conservation of the uplands, we need to look at the the, the trees which tend to follow the river valleys, the watercourses, and um, where farmers in and around the national park have put in their own you know, conservation programs. But uh, there are a couple of um, small charities and trusts that have done a couple of small projects, but um, there's nothing significant at the moment in terms of you know, uh, native woodland regeneration, conservation it seems like, like it's, just every ha- time it's just not happening at the moment. Uh, you know, there are some great spots, but there's so few of them. It's kind of a pity. Yeah,
0: it seems like a like a you know, rude, grassroots organizations are doing the best job, like a local angling club, local. Farm yeah, local yeah, people. Uh, yeah. They, they do these these little spots that yeah, are- there's
1: loads of little spots like that, and and one of the things um, we're trying to do with the the Alves and the Rewilding Wicklow project is to map all those little spots. And to start to articulate them, and you know, provide points of contact. So, you know, if you want to find out what's happening with the the Wolfgang and um, Forestry and um, project down in Ockram, or you want to find out what's happening with the Woodland Trust project in Lara, or you want to help to remove gorse or uh, whatever that particular project you're interested in, that there's points of contact because at the moment. Everybody's kind of doing their own thing. There isn't really a, you know, coordinated approach, and it hasn't been properly mapped. Now, partly because it's very difficult to get the maps. You know, it's I spent you know on and off for the last six months trying to get stuff like the boundaries of the national park. It's <laughs> a lot of a even lot of though,
0: you, would, you would think it's a basic stuff, right? No, and, you
1: can't because there's is, there's is, um. There's no electronic file of the, the a lot of the maps you want. So you can get an A4 PDF, but should, that's no use to man or beast. So trying to get the, the, um, the mapping done, I think, is going to be uh, a body of work. We've got a great guy now from um, Kilkool, Andrew Stringer, who started um, working on the GIS. He's, he's a bit of an expert in that area. And he's been looking at um, what can be done with the mapping and creating a database linked to a map so that we can start to populate it. Um, so when you can see either threats or opportunities, um, you can start to put them into the map. So we'd be looking at you know what data comes out from UCD. Can that be um, overlaid with sheep data? Can that be overlaid with data on native woodland and fire data? So depending on who you ask, the state either has twenty-one years or seven years of fire data. So we can look at you know where are the areas that are subject to fire. I know with um, I think it was. Kieran Nugent, you yeah, did this before. Yeah. And um, that was very interesting. I've spoken to him about this before on vegetation management. So vegetation it's such a
0: great episode and such underrated, you know. It was like an early days, 29th. And I think that was episode I published first in the new year, like in January. And like almost no one listened to it because like people were still busy. It was like, you know, there was like I didn't know any better. And but it, like you said, people kind of later on as the podcast became more popular, people start listening to it. And, and maybe year in, I got a lot of very good feedback on the 29 with Kieran, where he just such it was dropping such a knowledge bombs on, on forestry, on, on woodland, on uh, fire management, all, all this stuff.
1: See, I think if you, if you just basically leave gorse on the hillside, it's like leaving open cans of petrol. It's going to go on fire eventually,
0: especially now with the with the climate warming and the less less rainfall Uh, and all that.
1: Absolutely, but there isn't a vegetation management plan, you know, that goes. Okay, where let's look at the historic data. Where is the highest risks? It doesn't matter who set those fires. If they were accidental, if they were set by a farmer, if they were set by a bushcrafter, by somebody, you know, with a with a a, you know a a little um, portable barbecue, it doesn't matter where are they happening you know they're always happening in the same places pretty much you know because gorse tends to t- tends to follow its you know uh where where it's always been and you know what can be done to manage that vegetation doesn't mean that you know uh the that there needs to be uh you know a better approach to burning because um
0: that's what i hear
1: yeah to, uh, what are the, there's there's a lot of machines now that can um, remove um, gorse from hillside so what are the opportunities to resource it to actually you know put in fire breaks or remove you know large large amounts and um, to what's it going to be replaced with there's a lot of issues around vegetation management that i think um, need to be addressed i know wicklow uplands have a pilot project through suez um looking at some of those issues i know faith wilson one of the ecologists who i i've suggest maybe is is on your on your your um rolodex to call list um you know talking about some of those upland conservation issues because i think uh yeah fire is definitely not going away
0: yeah and like but gorse apparently gorse has a huge um is very important from the biodiversity standpoint and for you know birds and all all the kind of like a basic so uh, it, it's very difficult, you know. Like, why would we remove that if it's, if it's important? Um, yeah, but
1: I'm not, uh, it's like nobody's talking about, you know, removing deer. It's deer management, right? So, vegetation management, we're not saying remove all gorse. And um, we might be saying remove all rhododendron. Yeah, we should. But, you know, you can go to a garden center and buy rhododendron at the moment. I
0: like, heard, like, I only learned recently, it's on 99, a very recent episode, that rhododendron was brought to Ireland for, for woodcock shooting
1: yeah i i heard that um i don't know um it's certainly
0: a lot of people came came out i asked that question even before i published the podcast i asked that question and a lot of people said yeah yeah the same happened in uk for shooting for this that they were cutting like a uh not tunnels but they cutting like a like a path through the rhododendron and then how they were shooting and, and so on but like like you said it's a it's a, it's a funny thing because we have a couple of boar and it's like a big hula baloo about it and then you have equally or even more damaging and invasive species like rhododendron and then you can go to the shop and buy it and put in your garden.
1: yeah and, and in Wicklow there, was a, there there still is a lot of large estates and they all have rhododendron and the rhododendron How obviously
0: does it even, is it legal or is it like are they not obliged to remove it based on the wildlife act or something like
1: you no 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 there's no obligation to remove it um and and i believe species yeah but there's no there's no law against planting it or selling it so um yeah there's a this that's crazy that's crazy wild wild
0: boar which arguably very likely was native is on the invasive species list for whatever like i don't even want to go for the reasons for that but it is and as soon as a couple of boars showed up, National Wildlife Park Service showed, showed up. And then you have a rhododendron, which actually is a problem as an invasive species. And it's like, yeah, I can plant them. It's, you don't have, you don't have to remove it's,
1: them. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a body of work. Like, I remember this is years ago. I looked at buying a piece of woodland down in West Cork. And, um, you know, it was at a very good price. And I was like, that's suspiciously cheap. So I went down and I brought one of my buddies who works for Seed Savers, brought him down and said, Cormac, look, you know, what do you think? Come and take a look at this woodland. And, you know, he just back of an envelope kind of priced it up. And he was saying the price to remove and remediate this, it was covered in rhododendron. The price to get this into a a good um, state and remove the rhododendron, it was going to take three years of cutting manually. You can't use machines because it breaks it up and, puts the it'll spread from the roots and everything else and so you've got to manually cut it back and treat it for three years and the price of doing that was going to cost three times the amount of the site
0: yeah that's why the site was so cheap
1: exactly exactly so uh i think there is a body of work but the longer you leave it to start the the more the more difficult it's coming so i think yeah there's definitely an episode In your next 100, um, on on rhododendron, I I absolutely and 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 probably um, something on mapping. I know you've had the National Biodiversity Data Centre. I'm Mm -hmm. not sure which episode that was.
0: Oh, Um, but that was that that. was a
1: very interesting one. Um, now a lot of the mapping, a lot of the data at the moment seems to be on you know on individual species led stuff rather than general habitat stuff. So I think. And what we're looking at in Wicklow is, you know, almost more like a bit of a color coding system. We're not sure yet, but putting in something so that you can see more at a glance where the, the larger threats are and, 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 you know, stepping back from individual species, whether it's, you know, wolves or gooseanders or whatever, you know, I think the underlying, if we can lift the, You know, the overall um, habitat quality, then, uh, you know, the rivers will benefit. Everything else will, will, will,
0: will. So I just, I was just looking for it. It's episode 54, um, National Biodiversity Data Center. uh, Yeah. When when we, when we dealt, I, I,
1: I think that's worth, you know, looking at almost on a quarterly basis. You know, what's happening with mapping? What's happening with the data? How is the data getting into the public domain? And how has the data been put across? In a way that everyone understands it, you know. You don't want the data to be produced in these complex shape files that only somebody that has GIS skills can interrogate. You know, yeah. I think it has to be something that you know anyone can look at a map of their area and go, "This is you know the threats and opportunities that we're facing locally," and then that's how you get people engaged to do a particular you know replanting or rewilding or a conservation program.
0: Going back to fires and rhododendron, this is again what I heard, and there was in '99 um that the recent fires in Killarney were you know like the whatever the cause whatever started it that was you know whatever was it the barbecue was it the farmer like I don't know but there were huge swaths of rhododendron which was poisoned and it was kind of like um to to quote my guest, like a skeletons and it was yeah. like and 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 the problem, the, 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 the bulk of the fire when it started was when the, when the fire got into those rhododendrons and then that caused this massive fires, the like biggest in 20 or 40 years in Killarney, right? Something like that.
1: You're absolutely right. Like if rhododendron and, and laurel burns like coal when it's properly dried. So if you were to, you know, leave it sitting in the air, you know, off the ground for a number of years and then set a fire beside it it would you know be like covering the mountainside in coal it burned so hot so uh, that maybe maybe what what happened because as you know um you know native woodland doesn't burn very well
0: yes that we we seen that in killarney right that the, the, the yeah. where like it's, yeah. it's, it's a lot so of water they have
1: been and again you know, I don't know enough about the, the. I know there's still an investigation ongoing on that particular fire, but what may have happened is over the years, the, um, the rhododendrons are cut down to ground level and they're treated with a herbicide for three years and then it dies. It won't recover from that. But if that material is then not removed from the hillside, the fuel load builds up. It's like, the fuel load of allowing, you know, like what um, Kieran Nugent was talking about, if you let the gorse build up and build up and build up, then the fuel load is increasing. And, um, you know, I can take you two examples of that in Wicklow where the gorse has built up under um, telecom towers. And when that goes on fire, obviously the telecom tower goes on fire. So you know there needs to be a plan i think to you know a triage let's call it um for those areas and if things have been done maybe in the past like leaving large amounts of rhododendron um treated cut and effectively just left there um then that needs to be addressed because otherwise it will obviously happen again yeah
0: um listen so so just to wrap it up um how in terms of uh, fires, did you did you think that there should be a re- reform of the regulations related to fires? And if you were, you know, if you were uh, given and uh, and mandate, and say, hey, Ashley, you know, do it. Like, what would you do? Well, well I think
1: you- I think the first step will be to get a bit better transparency. So we put in a few PQs recently, parliamentary questions, asking about. Um, a few years ago, the minister said there was a, a National Gorse Fire Task Force. It doesn't appear that there was. Um, that was never set up. There may have been a plan to do so, but it's never been set up. There are some regional and local um, Gorse Fire Task Forces in, in in place, but there's never been a, compre- a comprehensive um, policy um, document to see how you would uh, manage um, vegetation. It might be worth, you know, this year having, having um, Kieran back Um, to talk about what that policy would look like, because I know he's been looking at how Germany and other countries have been um, following best practice on vegetation management. So I believe there, if we wanted, we could have a plan, but I don't believe there is a plan at the moment. Um, A
0: a little bit like with deer management.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and I would say a little bit like deer management um, or sheep management, vegetation management, any of these issues, first thing is to articulate and map it. And if there is no map of the density and you can't go, okay, where are the big problems? Is the problem in Killarney? Is the problem in Donegal? Is the problem in Wicklow? You know, the Wicklow problem might be small and it might be too small to actually address. And we might go, Hey, look, you know, yes, it's going to be um, an issue for the next generation, but we've got a bigger issue in Killarney. Let's fix that. So I think there needs to be some sort of mapping and some sort of triage. Um, Arguably, People will say, and and you know, I was chatting chatting to um, somebody in in in, uh, in the doctors about this yesterday. Uh, arguably, agreeing to do a plan or write another report or set up another task force is just pushing it down the road. Yeah, and and maybe it's better that you decide. Okay, it's be great to have all the data, but actually, while we're doing the data, let's also start. So I, I, I kind of am both, you know, I know in other areas what measure it gets done. Right. So if it was measured, it might get done. But there again, history shows that just because we write a report on it doesn't mean it ever gets implemented. You know, and, and writing a report can just be to push it along and not actually do anything. So probably there's a bit of both. Let's start. Let's resource some of these um, projects. Let's go. Okay you know, uh, chatting to people on the deer management, it would be something in the region of 40 grand to do, uh, you know, thermal drone project around Wicklow, choose maybe 20, 30, 40 deer hotspots, map them, count the numbers, look at what needs to be done with those areas, do it properly. Um, And, and, to be honest, if we addressed, you know, Wicklow is the poster child for deer management, isn't it in 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 the country? So if we came up with a plan for Wicklow, we could extrapolate into into other counties, and um, you know, everywhere else, I think would be relatively easier to deal with. Um,
0: Do you feel like we we would need some sort of a, or whether they would help to have like a, some sort of a national hunters deer hunters or hunters in general organization well, i don't right. like nrigc supposed to be that right they're their are irish chapter of face um but i don't like man i i don't feel like there is like a one organization that you know if i'm bringing a new hunter to the sport let's say i said like well you know go to these folks they're they're taking care of hunters needs they're out there they're talking to the media they're like like there is a number of organizations they it it feels like everyone does their little thing
1: absolutely that is exactly what happens they don't even appear at the top level to talk to each other so they all there's lots of different hunter organizations lots of different um rewilding and and um, nature organizations but they all you know are their own they all have their own kind of missions um and, and yeah, I think to, to set up another one would be so much challenging. There was the um, Deer Forum, mm-hmm. um, but uh, depending on who you asked, that was disbanded. We actually put in um, one of the Green TDs, put in a parliamentary question about this last week, and the response was that the Deer Management Forum hasn't been disbanded, but as far as anyone knows, it hasn't met for many years. So um, it may not have actively been disbanded but disbanded, but it, it doesn't actively exist. And arguably they weren't resourced to, you know, uh, task to, to come up with to come up with a national deer management plan. So uh, yeah, there's a there's a bit of work to be done um yet. And, you know, again, depending who you ask, is it better to, you know, do the paperwork? Or just, you know,
0: yeah. And like I had on the, on the on the episode, it, it was seventy one. David Scanlon from from Face, and like Face is not, unfortunately, it's not an organization for you know hunters for individual hunters. And I, and I, you know, I appreciate they they doing excellent job. Yeah, you know, at being in the Brussels, walking the corridors, advocating, lobbying, all that, and but man. I, I feel like they should be more engaged with the hunters on the, you know, on the ground. And like, like I said, NRRGC is a kind of a representative as like a member club that represents face in Ireland. But then I heard like maybe a year ago that there wasn't even an AGM held for, for face in Ireland. And this is, this is not good. And, no, and like, like not, you said, I don't think good, that the yeah. setting up yet another organization would help with, in anything. Um, because that would be just a, you know yet another one that would be uh, you know competing for members and for money and for everything.
1: Okay. Yeah, like yeah. there's definitely there's definitely work to be done on you know um, hunter education in Ireland and you know how um, people get into the sport. You know it can be difficult um, because you know you're trying to get your initial permissions and you know some,
0: i might have something coming on that
1: yeah then once you start and you know you get your first permissions it's like then oh uh, it's just so much easier but yeah it can be a difficult it can be a getting into recreational and um, stalking can be can be difficult um for people and you know like a few years ago we had we had some courses up in hilltop um, near me for women on target, you know, to, to introduce women into, the, into, um, shooting and they w- were completely oversubscribed. Um, oh. but you know, that was a one-off and, you know, it didn't, it, it didn't deal with, you know, how you get into deerstalking or whatever. So I think there's, I think there's definitely opportunities to, um, you know, improve hunter education in Ireland, but uh, yeah, there isn't, there isn't that much at the moment. Um, I've been to a number of, you know, good one-off um, seminars that the different deer associations have run, um, whether that's on veterinary side, on Ed Hicks has done some brilliant ones on, on um, venison butchery. Um, so there has been some really um, good ones and, and the IDC do a monthly online webinar now on elements of deer and they're really good. I think it's like, 15, 20 quid a year to join. Definitely, you should join the the um, the deer commission, and um, you will learn you will learn lots about deer, even if you're not a deer stalker. So, there there is information available, but there isn't an easy path to just go out, get your deer permissions, and um, you know the paperwork. Particularly when you start off, as you know, is a little bit daunting for everyone. Um, and the process of, you know, kind of onboarding as a, as a deer stalker is a little bit more challenging than maybe other types of hunting. Um, but that's yeah, the way and, it is. And,
0: you know, you touch on the same thing. I, I had this conversation with my friend um, maybe two years ago that these deer organization, Deer Commission, um, Wild Deer Association of Ireland, and there's a third one. I, I, the name is eluding yeah. me right now. They all have these courses. They all have these things. And I was talking with my, my friend, we were, we were driving down from one of these courses that was pre COVID and he goes like, yeah, I'm a member of this one. I'm a member of this one. I'm a member of this one. It's like, it's not cheap because all of a sudden you're a member of three or four organizations for you for NGOs. Yeah. Right. It's, it's not that great value for money anymore. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think we agree on that. That would be great. To have well, the, the IDC,
1: things. the IDC is amazing value for money. It's so cheap. Um, for uh, the the educational um, webinars they've had over the last uh, over the last year have been awesome. Like they're you generally once a month, and um, they've had some they've had some brilliant um, speakers. So I think that's a that's a good um, format but obviously they haven't been able to hold them in, in person because of the the, the, the lockdown. But and I, and I think there's now some of the ranges. I know Midlands are starting to open up now. And there's more courses being held there. I think there's actually one this weekend. And one of my buddies is doing something down in Midlands. So, uh, yeah, I think, you know, the hunter education will start opening opening up again um, because certainly in Wicklow, if there is a deer management plan, it's hard to see that it won't. Um, involve um culling
0: yeah absolutely i just
1: I, we can't fence the whole of wicklow right
0: <laughs> no last question the Wick- rewilding wicklow rewilding um organization you mentioned you mentioned
1: them yeah that's um a kind of grassroots organization and mm-hmm. um, the alvey brothers um set up and it's looking just at, just at wicklow although um, How it's
0: called,
1: Rewilding Wicklow. Rewilding Wicklow, yeah, yeah, and it was initially just set up as a kind of response to, um, I suppose, like myself, the observational side, not so much the science. Just going, you know, biodiversity looks like it's under 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 threat in Wicklow, um, and yeah, the, I think now the the kind of petition that they presented to the minister was ten, twelve thousand. Um, people, and a lot of people are volunteering and coming forward, guys like Andrew going, hey, look, I've got GIS skills. Other people um, have lobbying skills. You know, I'm doing a number of FOIs for them. So getting lots of volunteers involved, identifying projects, uh, you know, uh, probably the first year is going to be mapping and collecting a lot of the data of pe- who's doing what and where. Um, because sometimes there is you hear, oh, yeah, there is four deer management pilot projects in Wicklow that the uplands are running or there's a, a woodland conservation program down in Ockram or one up in Lara or whatever. But, you know, who, what, where, you know, all that data is all over the place and collecting it all together into one place is probably going to, you know, be a reasonable starting point. And, you know, then looking at what's worked well and um, hopefully duplicating that. Um, will be will be what the 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 program the program will be but um I'll send you on Danny's details and mm-hmm. maybe um that would be That's that would a, be that um one of be. the next one, one I, I asked- 100
0: I ask I ask him a question I ask you now, like what they what's their what's their position what's their position on, on uh on Wolf. Are there Oh kids? you'll have to
1: you'll have to ask Danny about Wolves. Right. Yeah, I, yeah, I, will, yeah. I
0: wonder if they're gonna steer we're, well clear on that. Like oh, But tell me,
1: think. give us a sneaky peek anyway into what um you know we've talked about what could be on the next one hundred kind of episodes, you know saying maybe something on um the new Garda wildlife crime unit, maybe something on blanket bogs. Um I think having um it might be challenging to get people to address it, but fire and um, getting more, more speakers on the data and mapping side, like, um, you know, yeah, the data center. Again. Yeah. And yeah. um, definitely. I think that would be good. And then maybe more compare, like the, the Swedish hunting episode you had, cause I'm quite excited. Oh, yes. Now that- that we're going to go to Sweden in week, 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 month, 41, week 41. What do they call it? Yeah. Yeah. And
0: Sweden is, Sweden is hunting. I'm, I'm just going yeah. to quickly find the uh, episode number. Is it 77? 77. 77. 77. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So
1: I think, um and and 88 was on Rewilding Scotland. And mm-hmm. then obviously 95 was my favorite with Martha on Poland. Yeah. So, really? Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was awesome. Um, So probably other comparative studies, you know, I think it would be great to, you know, get more people from, you know, what other countries I'm going to introduce you to some of my um, Canadian buddies to maybe I would um, love that. to I bring would in, love that. bring in some, you know, what's happening in Canada. Um, because, you know, every country with particularly with watercourses, you know, and, and the challenges that we're facing with, you know, sea trout and salmon, there's a lot of countries facing similar threats. So I think mm-hmm. um yeah, you See, know, I, I not- usually
0: I usually don't review what's in the coming episodes, but since it's a 100, it's a special, I I might or might not have some some stuff coming on the marine protected areas. Yeah. That's another that's another big thing. So yeah. uh you know, all I can say like I'm I'm working hard um to get people involved in the marine protected areas. And, and are there and any other
1: areas that you've really struggled to find? Are there any topics that people just go, Oh, I'll talk to you about that, but I don't want to talk publicly about it. because you,
0: you know what? I, I, I found it uh, very interesting, uh, in, in terms of seal and seal conflict. Yeah. Um, and you know, a, a, again, that's something that, that been um, kind of, I, I keep it under undercover. I didn't want to, uh, get it out but i think right now i can do that is i wanted to uh, shoot a sh- short documentary film on seal conflict and present b- you know both sides yeah. of the conflict and man uh, is so hard so we we had an episode when i talked with a trawler man um it was 78 episode 78 yeah. And, and then I had a, a 72 where I talk with a lady from uh, Seal Rescue Ireland.
1: Yeah, Mel. Yeah.
0: Mel, which we kind of purposely left the subject out. Um, but I was, you know, I was reaching to, um, I, I, I tried, but maybe COVID get in the way a little bit, but I was trying to talk to, you know, Seal Sanctuary and, and Seal Rescue Ireland. And Seal Rescue Ireland, through Mel, I had like a somewhat of a response. Folks from Seal Sanctuary, you know, they ignored me basically, and I I find it I find it hard to understand why people don't want to talk about the problem. You know, it's like let's let's talk about the problem, let's discuss something, and it seems to me like a lot of that boils down to you know what is the audience, and 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 audience in the sense of NGOs, they have their core audience. And by audience, I mean people who are paying the money, who are donating. Yeah, And they almost don't want to talk about stuff that they know in the fear of upsetting people who are, you, you know, because like, let's, let's take an example of, let's say, Irish Wildlife Trust, right? And by domain, mean want to pick on them. Yeah. I, you know, I, I love Porek Fogarty. He's a great friend of the podcast and, and they're doing absolutely fantastic job. But I think the fact is that. A lot of core audience or members of Irish Wildlife Trust—they're animal-loving, you know—to use the stereotype vegan cat ladies, right? Yeah. And And I'm just using yeah. that yeah, tongue yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and they're substantial core, and 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 then they know about that, and this is why they're not gonna say like, well, actually, we should get a hunters you know, work on hunters recruitment to control deer problem. We should, you know, they, they they don't want, they strategically not openly talking about certain things and not upset the audience. And I even saw the uh, on Twitter, you know, discussion to farmers, Hey, you should join Irish wildlife trust because they're doing so much and farmers not going to do that. and And like, because this is not, for them, right? Majority of people, not the majority, but the substantial portion of people who are members of Hayes after us they engage online in so-called farmer bashing, right? Like it or not. Oh. So farmers, even though there is a common ground, they're not going to join. They're, 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 there's a hostile relation, right? And this is something that, again, was very often on the podcast and what I feel is a value proposition for the podcast that I talk to all those different people and say like, Hey, let's work on the, let's work on the common ground first. Deal with the common ground first. And because whether you, you know, animal loving person or you're a hunter, you need to have a healthy ecosystem. You both want the same thing. Let's work on the same thing. Right. And once you work on the same thing, I, I'm, I'm going to repeat the same thing that I'm going to say in one of the coming episodes. But uh, hey, it's important. Right. If we work on, on common ground first, even we, if we have differences, even if you know, one side thinks that we should shoot the deer and eat them and the other side, side thinks that the deer is awesome and have a long lashes, let's find the common ground and work on the common ground first to have a healthy ecosystem. We both want that. And while we work together, we get to know each other better. The both sides start to understand each other better. Not only they will achieve wh- where a common ground is, then they in a much better position to work out their differences because they understand each other better. They, they, you know, and this is, what is upsetting to me sometimes. And at the same time, I feel like this is what I do here on a podcast, presenting those different points of view, which by the way, I'm getting heat from both sides from time to time, but at least like, Hey, let's try to acknowledge common ground. Let's try to push together where we think the same things and we deal with it, you know, differences later on once we achieve something.
1: Yeah. I think it's the same with, You know, a lot of the the NGOs that are getting involved with um, planting woodland, you know, they often don't have a deer management plan. I'm like, how can you not have a deer management plan? You're planting woodland in a deer hotspot in the Wicklow uplands and you don't have a plan. That to me is crazy. And maybe there is an element of it that the reason why they don't have a plan is because they feel their stakeholders won't want to talk about culling deer. But then you look at say the you know a lot of the um, bird conservation programs you know like the one in Kill Cool. Obviously, if you didn't um, cull grey crows and foxes and mink, you couldn't have that colony there. Mm-hmm. So, yes, yes, you know the 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 it's maybe the the you know. The, the human, the human wildlife conflict, as you know, a couple of the episodes call it, is you know core to some of the, to, to some of these. Unless the state just goes, look, if you're um, involved in woodland conservation or uh, you're, you know, accepting public donations to plant trees or whatever, you have to have a written deer management plan. That's the reals. So then, there's no. They just go. Oh, we have no choice. The state mandate that it's yeah. the right. thing.
0: But you know, like a sta- state, is also uh, kind of uh, su- susceptible to, you know, winds. Like where is the popularity? What people want because they always think. You know, I, 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 we we know about the. That's what people want, right? Like you see in the in the UK, what's going on? The whole. Trophy hunting, yeah. import, export, all, all that conversation. It it has very little with the factual evidence-based data. It is all about perceptions and campaigns and, and what people like. And, you know, like, oh, shit, I better not say anything about, you know, seal calling or, oh, shit, I'm, yeah. because, yeah. you know, coming coming the election, some, you know, Facebook account will, you know, unleash the shitstorm and I'm done and then I'm not yeah. electable and then I'm going to yeah. get crossed through, you know, the, so it's it'll be awesome if we were driven by evidence by data by you know by all those things and not by emotions and and unfortunately i think there's so much emotions involved and this is what you're what you're saying like how can you not have a deer management plan if you're planting woodland yeah like it doesn't it doesn't it literally but at the doesn't moment make the reality
1: sense. is today you don't have to have oh yeah but you know yeah. or or it can be on paper, but there's no implementation. And you know, you can basically become a deer sanctuary. Yeah,
0: <laughs> very good, very good, yeah. very good. Native native woodland sanctuaries plus deer sanctuary. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: But look, I think we've covered a, a yeah. you know a, a a wide kind of range. There areas maybe that are you know, and if you if you spoke to somebody in Kerry or Donegal, maybe they would have a different approach because their observations may be different my observations are coming from somebody you know spent the last 20 years up in the Wicklow uplands so i have you know my perspective as i say it's not always backed up by the science but where possible i try and you know um find the 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 experts speak to them i found you know luckily i found um you know this podcast that that has a lot of the experts all collected together which is kind of really handy sometimes i felt oh i was just like following up and you know, I just maybe you know spoken to about half the people over the last um, few years because it's you know certainly when you're talking to people that are interested in hunting, um, interested in conservation, interested in um, you know marine conservation, particularly the uh, you know ri- river uh, issues and salmon and sea trout. That I think you've done a great job in, you know, pulling together lots of lots of people, and um, yeah, maybe let's let's see what the next hundred episodes thank bring, uh, and, and we'll catch up for two hundred.
0: Oh uh, yeah, uh, Ashley, thank you so much for that. It, it's 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 been great. I appreciate your time and I appreciate this conversation. Uh, I'm sure people uh, will take a lot from that, and I'm going to put all the episodes that we mentioned in the show notes so people can reference them and, and, see it, and you know, are there any words of wisdom you would like to leave our listeners with?
1: You no, know? I'm, sure, I'm sure we've missed lots of episodes. And again, because of, you know, where I'm based on my own areas of interest, I've picked on ones that tend to deal with upland ecology or um, forestry generation or deer. But there's lots of other stuff, uh, you know, that I'd like to mention, like the cork lad that was talking about Ray or Skate. That oh, was yes. one, one of my one of my favorites. I think that was uh, I think that was that was amazing um you know uh, i
0: need to to find that one i I, I I just
1: he's a guy that i just i just really enjoyed listening to him you know he's the kind of guy i'd love to just go go fishing go for a pint with him you know
0: yeah Uh, 81 that's an episode 81 skates and marine rewild yeah yeah
1: so um i do i do have i do have um you know some some kind of um favorites uh that you know i probably will will listen to again And And and
0: you're right we need to we need to we need to caveat that that the episodes that we mentioned, this is why we mentioned it. That doesn't mean that the other episodes are worse or not as good. It just happened that in this conversation, we picked up on, on, on those from the perspective of, you know, your, your work, where you live and what, what your interests ex- are.
1: Ex- exactly. So I think if you were talking to somebody that was coming at it from more recreational angling or from a different part of the country, they might have a, you know, a different, a different perspective, you know, on it. So yeah, I think I'm just looking through my notes there. I think that was probably yeah, about yeah, there's a few other ones that, you know, we could probably um pull out to talk about, but I think we've covered we've covered a lot of the a lot of the um the ones that have a kind of wicklow or an upland psychology impact so i think yeah we we've we've done a good uh, done a good recap there listen thank you very much tommy thank you very much ashley appreciate it all right bye now bye.
0: thank you for listening if you enjoy the podcast please leave me five star rating on spotify or apple podcast this is great help for me and for the podcast and while you're already there don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter the link is in the description of the show